Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at the Natural Shoe Store. We love the Natural Shoe Store. They're gorgeous and sustainable. What more could you want? The Natural Shoe Store, because every step matters. Hi, it's Nathan with you. This is the Dumbo Feather Podcast. For the past couple of months, we've been exploring what the good society is all about, how we can create systems and communities that support people and planet to thrive. On this episode, we have a slightly different take on the topic. Dumbo Feather's editor, Kirsty DeGarris, is speaking with someone who has made her way into just about every Australian kitchen with her gorgeous cookbooks, Hetty McKinnon. Hetty is a Chinese-Australian cook who established Arthur Street Kitchen in Sydney's Surrey Hills in 2011, and not long after released her first cookbook, Community, which shared the much-loved vegetable recipes she was serving. Since then, many of fine cookbooks have followed, including her most recent, Tender Heart, a book about vegetables and unbreakable family bonds. Hetty spoke with Kirsty in September 2022. Community came to me like a secret handshake, right? Right in the beginning. And I didn't know the story until mm-hmm. I started doing some deeper research into you. But it sounded like the book was accidental almost. <laughs> is that? Oh, absolutely accidental. Yeah, Community is such a special book because it was never meant to be anything other than a record and a gift to my community. You know, the people that I served every week. I had this salad delivery business called Arthur Street Kitchen, which from home I cooked these based vegetarian salads and I delivered them to people on my bike. And I really started doing that with no background in food, no food dream, just a real keen interest and desire to do something that kept me centered in my community. At the time I was living in Surrey Hills, I had three very young children and I just had no desire to go back to an office. And so I just thought I could cook for people and that's basically how it felt. It didn't really fit. I never really felt like a business actually, to be honest. And so, yeah, I was just doing that. And then after a couple of years, um, people started asking for recipes. You know, I'd never written recipes before this. Even when I had the business, I was just basically making things up as I went. And particularly in the first year, there was a different salad because it was me just trying to come up with new things and new ways of pairing vegetables with legumes or grains or whatever. So I was really teaching myself to cook during that business. And I always am very grateful to the people of Surrey Hills who were so happy to eat the food that I was experimenting with. But yeah, after a couple of years, people started asking for recipes and I taught myself to write recipes and I was emailing them out to people. And then there was this one day when three different customers had said to me, oh, you should write a book. And I just took it as a sign. It's like, oh, okay, 
really all I thought about in those days was making my customers happy. And so like I thought, hey, that could, that could be cool. I'll write these recipes down. Could be like a little memory box of the food that we ate and conversations. Some of the people were featured in the first book in photographs and they're in some of the head note stories. And so it was like just this gift to my community. I really didn't expect it to be anything other than that. And I really didn't think it would resonate with so many people. And it still continues to resonate with so many people, even though the world has changed, the food industry has changed. Food 10 years ago was not what it is now. You know, there was no social media when I first started and it was just a very different world. And Arthur Street Kitchen, that really grew from word of mouth, which is what I wanted it to do. I really just wanted people who really wanted to eat the food to eat it. I didn't want people to eat it just because they thought it was cool or trendy or they'd read about it. I just really wanted people to power that business. And it was very similar with the book. You know, the book grew this kind of cult cookbook in Australia because people bought it and gave it to their friends and gave it to their family. and. It is such a beloved book because I think people really feel like they own that book. In that story, that story of sharing food with others, it could be family, friends, neighbours, strangers sometimes, and people see themselves in that story. And I think that's why that book really resonates with so many people from many, many walks of life. It's quite an incredible phenomenon, that book, because it's actually almost 10 years old. It's 10 years old as of next year. There's been two editions of it, and there are still people who are still discovering it. That, to me, is really incredible that those recipes have stood the test of time, that those stories have stood the test of time. And in a cookbook world where there are many, many cookbooks released every year, For a book like that to kind of achieve what it's done, it's very much credit to the people who cook the food. It's not even me anymore. I kind of look at that book as belonging to the people, home cooks around Australia. And now, you know, gradually around the world, people are finding that book too. They've made it what it is, which is this incredible connector for people. It never was released by a publisher outside of Australia. Like it's available to buy, but it wasn't officially released in like the US or the UK. And I kind of love that too. It kind of feels like it's Australia's little secret. feels really fitting to have that as my first book as this other thing because I feel like my careers and my books have progressed over the years and that one stands out on its own as this love letter to this really beautiful time and beautiful neighbourhood that I lived in for many years. So, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was extraordinary. I mean, I came across it, I reckon it was 2013, sitting at my neighbour's. That's pretty early on. Yeah, yeah, it was early and I'd never heard of it. And I was sitting at her kitchen bench, you know, face down in two very small children. And both yeah. of us were. <laughs> and I always am a bookshelf stalker. And so, and I was like, oh, show me this one. And she said, it's the charred broccoli salad. you got to look at that. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Yeah. So anyway. It that's, was- that's the salad that started it all, really. <laughs> <laughs> it started my journey and then it's always the favourite salad of the business. So, My favourite book so far, or the one that I get the most excited about and experiment more with, I should say probably more than favourite because I have them all, is To Asia With Love because mm. I grew up in a very meat and three veg family and became vegetarian like you did. Well, I didn't even realise that community was vegetarian for a while. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> to land. I'm interested in your journey to vegetarianism because that was quite 
young? Was that an overnight thing or a process? Pretty much overnight. I was a teenager at the time. And before that, I grew up in a Chinese-Australian household. We ate Cantonese food every night and we ate kind of a bit of everything. There was a lot of meat and there was a lot of like offal, everything. Like we ate everything like pig's intestine soup as a normal dish. And it is a normal dish. It was a normal dish in our house. And some of my favorite foods were meat dishes. But there was this moment when I woke up one day and, and there was like some something I smelt. Just didn't want to eat it anymore. And I really adjusted to being vegetarian. I never feel like I'm missing out. And I think that's because my mom adjusted her cooking very quickly. I was still living at home at the time. So she started to vegetarianize a lot of the dishes that I grew up eating. And I started to experiment myself with cooking and it never felt like I was missing out. And so that's why a lot of people do cook from my books without knowing that they're vegetarian because I rarely put vegetarian on the title, on the front page, on the cover. The books being vegetarian are almost second to me wanting to give you beautiful, delicious food. The way my mum cooked and the way I like to cook is very inclusively and everybody is welcome at the table and you don't have to be a vegetarian or a vegan to enjoy my food. It's for everyone. So I didn't become a vegetarian for any aggressive environmental or any kind of ethical issues. I mean, now I obviously have those. I mean, I do think that people should eat less meat and they could. And I think that certain people are more suited to that diet. Like I don't ever crave meat. I don't have to take multivitamins. Like I think there are certain blood types I've read who, which are more suited to being vegetarian. And I think for me, it's a really easy thing to be. So by giving people really delicious vegetarian meals to cook without them thinking, oh, tonight I have to cook vegetarian. That's always my philosophy in food. And it's become something I'm very passionate about often quietly, because I do think as soon as you mention the word vegetarian, there is almost, it's like a taboo in certain circles, not in all circles. Some people immediately attach that there's something missing from that food. Whereas I feel like my recipes and my food is always about being more rather than less. You know, you can have a really delicious life without needing to eat meat. And if I can influence some people in eating less meat, then that's part of my contribution to the world, I guess. Yeah. When did you know that it was food that was what you were put on earth to do? Because you started in PR, I believe. <laughs> you know, I didn't think I would ever be cooking for a living or writing about food for a living. As I said earlier, it was never like a food dream that I had, but I was always around food. My mum's a tremendous cook, still is a tremendous cook. And so I always understood the importance of food and in the importance of abundance and the language of food as a way of expressing something other than just feeling like you're full. The way that my mum cooked for us as a family was about enjoyment and her way of expressing her love for us and her way of expressing herself. And so Cooking and food has always been such a huge part of my life, even though I didn't particularly think of it as a career. Honestly, like when I started Arthur Street Kitchen and when I started cooking for that business, there was something kind of inside that kind of all made sense. It's through food that I started to understand who I was as a person. All my influences came together on the plate. 
And the food really started to serve this other thing for me. It started to take on deeper resonance for me personally in terms of understanding my mother's world, understanding where she came from, if that was just through cooking a dish that she taught me or it was using an ingredient that she introduced to me down to conversations that we would have while we cooked together. When I had Arthur Street Kitchen, she was there every single day when I cooked because she was looking after my youngest son, who was like about one at the time. And But she would actually just come into the kitchen and help me when she was meant to be babysitting. But it was a really special time. And so cooking and food opened up this new world to me that I never knew was missing. When you grow up as a child of immigrants, you're not always looking critically at the things that you've missed out on. It's always like almost trying to chase your tail and be as white Australian as I could and to fit in and to find belonging by muting parts yourself and becoming this other person. But it was through food and it's through like a decade of cooking and writing about food and challenging the things that I knew and challenging the things that other people say. I've not quite arrived, but I'm on this journey to just understanding a bit about myself that makes more sense. And also writing about it is incredibly cathartic to me. I see it as almost therapy because it resonates with so many other people. Tender Heart, the new one, is my fifth cookbook. And so they gradually do become more personal. And at the time when you're writing them, you think they can't get any more personal, but they do because you touch on other parts of your life, which will touch other people too. Because at the end of the day, and I think something that I always try and show through my food and through my recipes is that we're all just human beings with very similar emotions, but we come from very different beginnings or backgrounds which will colour the way we see the world. And so I'm just trying to find common ground in my stories and in my books and in my storytelling. For me, cooking has become storytelling. The most satisfying part of food is when I can see how it kind of touches my soul and how it will touch other people's soul. You know, I really wonder what type of person I would have been if I hadn't started cooking. Maybe a less enlightened person, we all get there. We all find ways of getting there. But for me, food is just instrumental and central to this personal growth and personal journey that is reflected in the world and the people around me. You're raising American kids now. You've been there for a while, haven't you? Yeah, I don't know what they are, to be honest. (laughs) Not quite American kids, actually. They hang on very tight to their Australian roots and their Chinese roots. And there's definitely an Americanness in them, too. I was trying to prove that I was Australian enough. Whereas I think for this generation, it's very different because they are so much more open to just being lots of things. That's one of the advantages of being in a city like New York because people are from everywhere. It's such a melting pot and it's just a different time. Growing up in Sydney in the 80s was pretty rough when you weren't white. I'm interested what you were saying just before about this book being the most personal tender heart. I certainly felt that. Mm. You write to your readers like we're old friends. I wonder if there's this progression towards opening up more to the Chinese side of you as you get older. Mm. Was it from your mother's 
did you learn to cook standing beside her or was that something later? Yeah, I mean, you know how there's all this fervour for kids needing to learn to cook when they're four, otherwise they're not going to be able to support themselves ever in the kitchen. That just didn't exist in my house. My mum didn't want us in the kitchen, but I would stand and watch or we would talk about food a lot. My mum is really the keeper of all the traditional recipes in our extended family. She's known to make the best versions of the food from the village back in China. She said she learned by observing, by watching. That always stuck with me, actually, when she said that. She just called before you called just to see what I'm cooking for dinner or sometimes I'll make food and she'll watch on FaceTime. So there is this very common love for food between us. I think she's incredibly proud of the fact that I am interested in the things that she did because often the children of immigrants, you come to the West. My generation was the first to go to university. And that's just a source of such pride for immigrant parents. But then when you decide you actually want to go back and do what they did, it would come as a surprise, but also a source of great pride for her that I'm actually really interested in her stories and in her as a person. My mother never worked. She never had the opportunities to work. And I often see very strong parallels between her as a person and me as a person, but we grew up in different times, in different countries, in different generations. She never had the opportunities that I had. So what's really interesting to me is that we've ended up at the same place, which is cooking for our families and really wanting to share that love of food, even though her version of sharing is slightly different to the way I share food, that base love is still there. A lot of my younger years were shaped by my father dying and it meant that I probably spent more time at home with my mum. I was the youngest. My sister was already working. My brother had just finished high school. I was a very responsible teenager because I had to be. There's a saying in Chinese to be guai, which means a good child. Those things were really important to me because I didn't want to upset my mother and I didn't want to bring more stress into the home. Having that huge upheaval in our family changed the person I am. It is going to change who you are. It changes your trajectory in life. It changes your outlook. Spending more time at home with her because of what happened meant that I saw another side of her. We spent a lot of time together. We ate a lot of lunches together. This book was important for me to write because there's nothing a big event like that doesn't touch. It touches every part of who you are. I guess my appreciation for food too we ate so well as my younger kids because my dad worked at the markets. As soon as something came into season, we had it in the house. We ate only hyper-seasonal food and had access to everything because of him and his job. And then when he died, my mum, I remember saying this was the first time she's really had to go to a grocer since she moved to Australia. And so that really changes the way you think about accessibility to food and that informed a lot of how I wrote this book. A lot of vegetable books on the market are all about seasonality and about shopping at your farmer's markets. And to be honest, eating seasonally is great, but it can get really stressful feeling <laughs> like you have to go to the farmer's market to pick up your most hyper-seasonal vegetables. I really wanted to present a different side to vegetables in this book in that it's okay and even now, and I think this is influenced from seeing my mum, but I still shop 
mostly from the supermarket, whether that's an Asian supermarket or just my regular supermarket on my corner, because that's just what's more practical to my life economically too. So I just wanted to give people this other version of a vegetable book that was really just about celebrating vegetables, eating what you have and eating what's accessible and economical rather than just having beautiful watermelon radishes on every page because I feel like that's just not accessible to most people. And most of the time, I'm like every other home cook in the world, cooking from what I have in the fridge and what I have in my pantry. I don't think there's a vegetable book on the market that approaches vegetables in this way from the mindset of the home cook. I imagine in such a big city as New York and how dramatically impacted by that initial wave of COVID that you would have just Mm. been caught in must have been terrifying. And you talked about dealing with it with cabbage almost. Like that's Yeah. COVID in many ways changed the way I cooked. It changed the way I looked at everyday vegetables. You're not going to the market. You're lucky if you can get a food delivery. It was such a state of panic, particularly the first three months, that from week to week you didn't know, am I going to be able to get a food delivery this week? The supermarkets were still open and I was going to my local supermarket for a while until people scared me and said, you shouldn't be going. Then I had to wait up till 1am to get a delivery slot. So then you start thinking to yourself, how do I shop wisely so that would give me as many options as I can for as many meals as I can for the next week? And so I found myself ordering things like bags of carrots, bags of potatoes, and a whole cabbage, and like kimchi. I was very, very obsessed with kimchi because to me, it's instant flavor. A lot of the recipes that I've shared over the last few years are from those times during COVID because, for example, I worked out how I could use a cabbage to make three different meals. You could use half of it to make some braised cabbage wedges. When you finally shave raw cabbage, it's very voluminous. quarter of a cabbage, you could mix that with some rice vermicelli and you have a salad. For the other quarter, you could stir fry that with some other types of noodles It was all about making your vegetables go further. That really influenced the vegetables that I chose for this book. They're everyday supermarket vegetables with a few wildcards thrown in. I needed to express my love for a few of the vegetables in there that are not as supermarket friendly. Things like taro, which are not everyday vegetables to many people, but they are everyday vegetables to a lot of people in the world. I absolutely crave taro a lot of the time and seaweed, which I'm always trying to make people eat more seaweed (laughs) because it's so environmentally sustainable. It can just be used in so many ways and you can buy a bag of dried seaweed and it lasts ever because you need the tiniest amount just to add flavour. Yeah. Question about your name, because for the first time you have Hetty Louis McKinnon written mm-hmm. on the title. Can you tell me about that? Well, that's my name. My, <laughs> I mean, lose my family name. And over the years, I just dropped it. I will be very honest. In my 20s, it was really fun to have the Western surname. And I was very happy to drop my Chinese name. 
But over the years, as I've progressed as a person and moving to the States and feeling this great yearning for my childhood and the things I miss about living with my mom and really delving more into my own personal histories, that I really felt like I wanted to bring the name back to the cover of my book because that is truly who I am. And I talked about being a child of immigrant a few times, but you go through stages. It's like this cycle where when you're younger, you just want to be white. And then as you get older, not for everyone, but certainly for me, as I get older and my children get older and we realize how lucky we are to have my personal history, how lucky I am to have had that upbringing and to have that rich culture, that culture is harder to embrace when you grow up in the West. You have to work a lot harder to stay connected to it. I guess this is not something that I realized until my kids have gotten older, until I've lived in America and I've been away from everything that was familiar to me. And I just feel like I really want to reconnect with that Chinese side. And it's been a process that I've been doing for the last five, six years, particularly since I moved here, actually. So it just felt right to have... My full name on the cover, it's a book about my dad in many respects. And I guess in many ways, I'm finally ready to embrace my full self and to actually be really proud of that is a huge personal step for me. And it's a gift. It's a lovely thing about getting older. The next issue that you'll be in for Dumbo Feather is on the theme of Beyond Ego. It seems like your work has got to this point of expressing beyond all of those things to really come back to who you are, which also brings me to the Peddler Journal, which I have a few of, just (laughs) piled up. They're beautiful books. I love the printed artifact Mm -hmm. and I love the size of that. I love that there's a dust cover. There's so much that's so tactile about it. You do most of the photography, right, or a lot of the photography? A lot of it, yeah. I have a partner in that. I'm really happy you mentioned Peddler because Peddler was really the start of my journey that has been reflected in my books, which are a much more commercial venture. I think back then in 2016, when we first thought of it, I didn't feel like I could tell the whole story yet. The world was a very different place. And what you saw in the food media, particularly in America, was very chef-driven, very celebrity chef everything very loud, everything very trend-focused. And I just didn't see myself reflected in mainstream food media. So I thought, well, I want to tell stories too, but I don't see where my stories fit in all those magazines. I love printed paper. I'm a paper geek. And so I thought, oh, I'm just going to start up my own magazine. And I didn't really know if anyone would be interested because they're just these quiet little stories. We wanted them to be based on memories. And I remember at the time, there was a lot of people saying, oh, there's too much sentimentalism in food. And I was like, no, this is all about sentimentalism. It's all about nostalgia. Something I've learned to trust over the years. It's like when I want something, I'm not the only one in the world. There are other people who are yearning for the same thing. The people who love Peddler love Peddler. And it's a very niche little group of people. They've come to it with an open mind, with an open heart, and they want to be filled That magazine is not about the food, really. A lot of the contributors say, oh, this recipe has this unusual ingredient. Should I change it for something else? And I'm like, no, it doesn't matter what the ingredient is. It's however that recipe was meant to be written. 
And I can tell you that in the food media, that almost never happens for a recipe to be completely given the space that it deserves because in mainstream commercial food media, everyone is always thinking about, is that ingredient available at the supermarket? And I do that too in my books because I know it's going to have this huge audience, but Peddler is written with the singular person in mind and that's the person reading it and with absolute authenticity. It's about taking a step back, having moments to breathe. There's a lot of blank space in the magazine. Just kept it for what it is, which is not very profitable yet incredibly soul-enriching business and magazine for the people who love it, for the people who want the slower more meaningful side of food. Mm, I love that. I also, for the same reasons, love the house specials podcast that you do because, you know, I'm sitting on a train with you going to Chinatown to go shopping Mm, or listening to someone pour tea and those sounds really bring it Mm. to life in such a peaceful way. Then my last question for you, Hetty, is what's your vision for the world and how people eat? I'm interested to know what you imagine, what you'd love to see. Well, I want people to enjoy the process of cooking. I I hear a lot, particularly in America perhaps, and I don't know if that's actually true. I feel like Australians have this deep love and enjoyment of cooking and cooking for their families. And I think during COVID was the first time I saw a lot of American families cooking together and eating together. And that was so heartening for me to see, oh, people have these real interests. And so the pleasures in food are on so many different levels. It's not just eating something that's delicious, but it's the act of cooking. It's the act of thinking about it. My mum used to always say to me, the hardest bit about cooking dinner is actually thinking of what to make. What I want to give to people is confidence to cook really well and to cook with flavours really well, but actually to enjoy the process, to enjoy little moments People always talk about how onerous it is to chop a vegetable. And it's like, it cannot be onerous. Why does it have to be? It takes like two seconds to chop a cauliflower. I really just want to give people joy in the process and to treasure those moments, whether it's just you in the kitchen on your own or you're yelling out across the open kitchen to the living room to where your kids are sitting, which is what my situation is. Cherish those moments in cooking you know, it's going to vary from family to family and person to person, but there is joy there. Just kind of looking at food in a more holistic way. Get Hetty's latest cookbook, Tender Heart, at your favourite bookshop or retailer or over at her website, hettymckinnon.com. The Dumbo Feather podcast is made in collaboration with Cheshire Audio and Yaga. For more conversations with extraordinary people, subscribe to Dumbo Feather magazine. We deliver worldwide. Thanks to our friends at the Natural Shoe Store, where you'll find footwear that's good for your feet and kind to the planet. Thenaturalshoestore.com.au